Welcome back, comrades, to the Socialist Rifle Association podcast. This is your host, Faye, and our co-host, Austin. Hi there, everybody. How you doing? So we're going to start off again today with the news. And boy, has there been a lot of news the past couple of weeks. Uh, for starters, the big one, the big boy, the one everybody has been waiting for, Bernie Sanders has declared his official campaign for president in the pr- Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of big news there. Yeah, I think it's pretty much expected. Just me personally, I was I was pretty excited to support him previously. I mean, I kind of owe my radicalization as a socialist to his visibility and his his running. He's more of a social democrat and stuff, which is, you know, kind of the best that you can get <laughs> and still be involved in politics in the United States. But uh I definitely didn't know what a democratic socialist was before he started calling himself one. Absolutely. And, you know, just a heads up, everything that we're going to be talking about on this podcast is our opinion. And these aren't official positions of the SRA. We are a multi-tenancy organization. So different people in the membership and the leadership all have different opinions on electoralism. So we just sort of want to talk about this in the context of our opinion. And absolutely, Bernie Sanders, I think there's a lot that he can be criticized for. He's certainly no Lenin. You know, he's no Mao. He's not going to start the revolution. But uh, I think that overall, Bernie Sanders has probably been one of the most beneficial people to the left of the last 50 years. 100%. I think that he's a great example of the kind of strides that can be made just by increasing the visibility of people who call themselves socialists. That's not to say that electoralism is, is necessarily the only way forward. We in the SRA are certainly more of the mindset that we need to embrace mutual aid, we need to protect ourselves, we need to look out for our own communities and not expect that electoralism is going to fix all of our problems. But we do have to consider the visibility of someone like Bernie puts the word socialism in a lot of people's mouths. It's even put the word socialism in the president's mouth where he feels like he needs to publicly rebuke it now, which is, you know, something important to acknowledge. I personally am excited for Bernie to be running again because of that increased visibility, because of the of the discussions that are going to be happening around him. I'm not going to be calling people up and saying like, hey, did you know that democracy is rad and we should all be doing that? That's certainly not what I'm going to be doing. My efforts are going to be largely spent exactly where they're at right now. But I think it's important to, to realize that Bernie is a step in in a in a positive direction for us. You know, kinder capitalism is still capitalism, but it is kinder, and there is a certain amount of harm reduction that happens if someone like that is able to radicalize platforms in the way that he has, where almost every single Democratic candidate right now at least feels the need to lie to the public that they support Medicare for all, which is admirable in in, in its own way. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree. I'm not going to be phone banking for Bernie. I'm not going to be going out and canvassing for him. But when he announced his campaign, I gave him that 27 bucks because I'll tell you what, it's nice seeing somebody in the public sphere who will make billionaires afraid. The reaction of the uh, well-heeled members of the media has certainly been entertaining, if nothing else. Oh, God, yeah. It's... it's it's just hilarious to see the the fear-mongering and the people, you know, just 
parroting all these topics from McCarthyism and kind of the modern day example of that in Venezuela and looking for all the usual straw men to be like, hey, look at this country that we destabilized isn't doing very well. It doesn't socialism suck. But that does bring us back to some of the criticisms of Bernie, which is that when it comes to his foreign policy, he's not particularly anti-imperialist. You know, just recently he tweeted out support for ousting Maduro, although he's not as much of a war hawk as, say, Marco Rubio, who is currently pushing for us to invade Venezuela. Although he's certainly no hawk, Bernie Sanders is certainly willing to bow down to and appease members of the uh, military-industrial complex by giving tacit support for their, or even just explicit uh, support for their imperialist wars in order to pursue his domestic agenda. So you sort of have to look at things with the perspective. Even if Bernie Sanders might improve the reputation of socialism in the U.S., even if he might push beneficial social democratic policies in the U.S., how much is he able or willing to do to prevent the harm that U.S. imperialism does across the globe in its suppression of left-wing movements and its exploitation of vulnerable populations? Yeah, absolutely. I think that even on that front, there's something to be said for it being a step in the right direction, that at least he's not calling for outright invasion, which when you're talking about American politics, that's something that everyone can get behind who's currently involved. They're currently very like, hmm, how do we spread American influence across the globe as much as possible? And so it's kind of sad and cynical to be like, oh, well, at least he's not saying like, you know, we should publicly execute Maduro and publicize it on on all of our, you know, network channels or whatever. At least he's not doing that which is really fucking sad to say yeah and although it's questionable how much again he'd be able or willing to do with regards to american imperialism in a global sense bernie sanders is one of the current democratic candidates who is most supportive of radical action in reducing climate change and addressing the massive harm that's bearing down on us with that respect Bernie Sanders is a backer of the Green New Deal, and while that is not sufficient to address the you know, necessary retooling of our economy to prevent catastrophic climate change, it is the most radical and most effective document put forward so far. Although it's not binding if its roadmap were to be followed, that would probably be the best chance that our country and the world really has for addressing climate change within the capitalist framework. So, you know... Bernie Sanders might be a bit deficient on his foreign policy, but in the long run, I think it's probably just as, if not more important, to address climate change and reducing our carbon emissions right now that will probably benefit our comrades across the globe much more than any foreign policy change that Bernie Sanders could realistically implement. Yeah, the rest of the Democratic establishment, I mean, you can say certain things about him not necessarily being a part of it, but he's running as a Democrat, you know, he's affiliated with the DNC, all that all that kind of stuff. As far as looking for allies in that establishment who are even going to consider even the moderate actions that are that are proposed in the Green New Deal, no one can really be found, you know, who who's willing to do some of those things. The the great example recently is Diane Feinstein. A bunch of children go up to her and they're saying like, "Hey, we really need bold action on this. We only have about 12 years." before everything goes extremely badly. Well, listen here, little lady. I've been doing this job for 30 years, and I've never gotten anything done. And I'm not (laughs) going to change that anytime (laughs) soon. So you just sit your pretty little butt down and run for senator when it's your turn. 
Yeah, that's the thing. She proposes that long game that we have to, you know, really work on moderate proposals. We have to think about what's going to actually pass. And it's so funny because she's providing the perfect fuel and the perfect example of how inept and pathetic our current system is in the face of this kind of danger. She's talking about like, oh, well, we got to think about things that can actually pass. Whereas the children are like, okay, but we got to think about things that will actually save people's lives. We have to do things that actually work. Yeah, we have to do things that will actually be effective. And it's just so funny to, to see Feinstein just kind of like flail in the face of that well I a lot of people voted for me it's like yeah a lot of people are gonna die if you keep doing what you're doing so you know (laughs) I just one part of that clip that really amuses me as I I think it's a lot less impressive than she think it thinks it sounds to say that she won a one million vote plurality Mm. in California Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. like if those if those 12 year olds knew what plurality meant they might be a little bit less impressed yeah (laughs) That's 100% true. I think that this really interesting trend, it ties into a lot of what at least I've been ranting about since I've been on, on the podcast as far as like these, um, the, the tactics of, of silencing that the, that the liberal establishment uses when they encounter people who are further to the left of them and who propose radical actions. They have this constant rhetorical strategy of proper channels of manners, of bringing things up in a certain way so that they can actually get done and stuff, and they have no appreciation for the severity of situations or the way that these personal issues affect the way that people talk about them. We have to phrase things in such a way that the opposition will be receptive to them. It's kind of funny when you're talking about global extinction to to think about there being another side. Or thinking about there being manners when it comes to things like police brutality, when it comes to things like climate change, like what we're up against, when it comes to things like deposing foreign leaders. They talk about it like they're talking about fucking tax policy, you know, something far less severe. They, they have no appreciation for the gravity of the situation. What it really comes down to is that the civility discourse and the sort of worship of civility and proper channels to dive into a sort of theoretical sense, it's really a form of like bourgeois ideology that you have to be able to speak like an upper class person you need to be able to present your ideas in a format that is acceptable to to the ruling class if you present your ideas in a format that doesn't appease these people's instinctual sense of civility if you don't appeal to their standards of discourse then they can write off your argument and disregard it entirely even if you're correct even if your logic is good even if you have have all the facts and resources on your side and you've done all the research and you go to these people if you don't present your argument in the correct tone they can dismiss it entirely and that's that's exactly what happened with this these children talking to diane feinstein they quoted the ipcc report saying that we have 12 years to prevent a 1.5 degree increase in global temperature and feinstein just said oh well that's not going to happen yeah, it's not going to happen because you're the person who's blocking it and not backing it. Yeah, not with that attitude. <laughs> not with that attitude is anything going to change. It's so interesting. The You know, these children were talking over each other. They were talking over 
over Feinstein. They were they weren't participating in the usual systems of discourse and stuff because how could they? They're they're talking about something that is so dire and so desperate and is going to affect so many people like fuck you if i can't present it in essay format you know <laughs> like we're not talking about something that we can take the time to have a debate on it's a lot like racism it's a lot like things that affect a bunch of people to have a debate on it is to, to legitimize the standpoint that there is something to debate and there isn't there's nothing to debate about climate change there's nothing to debate about racism there's nothing to debate about fascism it's just bad there's only one side there doesn't need to be a discourse about it it comes down to those who it affects and those who it does not and if the people who it doesn't affect or is not going to affect, if they stop listening, then fuck them. Especially when those people are in positions of power, when they have power that they can use to affect change, when they have these offices, when they have political capital that they can put towards these problems, and they choose not to, because it doesn't affect them. Diane Feinstein is 85 years old, and has just been reelected to another term as senator. When her term is up, she's going to be 91 years old. She will never feel the effects of catastrophic climate change because she's going to be fucking dead. She doesn't care about it at its shows. She doesn't care about the future that her grandchildren will face because her grandchildren are going to inherit her hundreds of millions of dollars. Doesn't help that her husband is a billionaire. Exactly. These people... That's one of the things that you need to keep in mind is that climate change is primarily going to affect the poor. The well-off, the wealthy, are going to be fine. They're going to move to their little bunkers out in New Zealand and live in underground mansions with servants for the rest of their lives while the rest of us burn alive. Now, that's an exaggeration, but ultimately what it comes down to is that climate change is a form of class war of the wealthy against the poor, of the ruling class versus the working class. Because at the end of the day, they're going to still be mining our labor. They're still going to be taking the value that we create as workers and using our labor to support their lifestyle, even as the world falls apart around us. The standard of living of the average person, especially in the global south, is going to drastically worsen over the coming decades as climate change begins to have more and more severe effects. And it's not going to have nearly the same effect on the rich. So the rich don't care. The elderly don't care. The business owners and billionaires don't care because it's literally not going to affect them. And these are the people who have the power, who have the ability that they could make a change and they choose not to because it doesn't benefit them. In fact, they'll probably be better off if climate change does happen because then we'll be more desperate. Yeah, what 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 better form of eugenics is there than than almost global extinction that they can insulate themselves from? That's the thing when we're talking about billionaires, especially when we're talking about climate change. We're not talking about humans coming together and trying to to solve a thing. We're not talking about convincing them. When we're talking about billionaires, we're talking about enemies. We're talking about people who are directly opposed to improving the standard of living and preventing climate change from affecting the rest of the world who doesn't own as much as them. They're not interested in fixing the planet. They can build insane homes on the water, you know, they can, 
They, they can live in air-conditioned environments. They can live in bunkers. They're counting on their amount of wealth and resources insulating them from any of these consequences. So when we're talking about billionaires, we're talking about people who are relying on our extinction for their own continuing social status. That's why we, we need to not be thinking about what are, what are some moderate solutions? What's going to pass the Senate? Abolish the Senate. No one cares about the Senate when we're talking about billions of people dying because of the actions of billionaires. The only way to prevent climate change, because when you get down to it, when someone has a billion dollars, you know, at that point, we're not talking about wealth anymore. We're not talking about the things that they own or the money in their bank account. When someone has a billion dollars, that's not wealth. That's capital. That's the ability to affect economic change, to make things happen in the world by allocating resources. When someone is a billionaire, that means that they have massive control over the economy. Their decisions determine what gets made and what doesn't get made, what gets done and what doesn't get done, what gets produced and how and by whom for what price. If billionaires don't support efforts to ameliorate climate change, then efforts to ameliorate climate change won't happen. Even if we do get Bernie Sanders or someone else who actually cares about addressing global warming, even if we get them in power, they'll only be able to allocate government resources to solving those problems. And the government is very much constrained in what it can do and what money it can raise and how it can spend it. Ultimately, the billionaires are the people who have the ability to combat climate change, and they will not do it. They will not. Under no circumstances will they actually do anything to address climate change unless it can increase their capital further. So it doesn't matter who we elect. It doesn't matter what party is in office. It doesn't matter, really even doesn't matter whether or not Bernie Sanders is elected and whether or not the Green New Deal gets through Congress. It doesn't matter because ultimately at the end of the day, the wealthy control our economy and they aren't going to address the problem. And that's why the only way to prevent catastrophic climate change is to have a revolution. The issue is that there's not enough time for that either. America is not going to become a socialist country in 12 years. The revolution is not going to happen in 12 years, and even if it did, it would take longer than that to restructure the economy, especially in the wake of all the chaos that a revolution entails. It would take even longer to restructure our economy to reduce carbon emissions that we will almost certainly see a 1.5 degree Celsius increase no matter what happens. You know, in all that condescending rant, Feinstein did get one thing correct. We are not going to reduce carbon emissions and prevent catastrophic climate change in the next 10 years. It's not going to happen we are going to see that cataclysmic change. We're going to see that catastrophe occur, and there's nothing that we can do, even as radicals, to stop it in time. So therefore, any serious leftist radical needs to take into account that climate change and a 1.5 degree Celsius increase and likely more is inevitable because of capitalism. And so when you talk about your revolutionary theory, when you talk about your socialist society of the future. You need to take that into account that this will happen and we need to plan around it. I, su I suppose on this, I'm only slightly more optimistic. I do think that it is possible. I think that putting socialism in enough people's mouths, getting enough people thinking about it, educating the proletariat, educating the people who need to be educated about what rights we could have and what rights we should have, 
I, I do think that we could accomplish some pretty, some pretty radical things. And I do think that a lot of the world, while, you know, maybe they're not embracing socialism entirely, but I do think a lot of them are at least attempting to be more energy positive. I think it's worth saying that American capitalists are 100% our enemies when it comes to fixing the planet but they are an enemy that can be defeated because I think that it's just going to be a matter of the working class realizing the power that we that we actually have. I mean, we ended the government shutdown extremely quickly. It's just going to be a matter of telling people what power they have by withholding their labor, by putting their labor into more positive things, by attempting to protect their community by understanding that electoralism is only ever going to reduce harm, that it's not going to protect you necessarily, because as we all know, you know, the tools of the state often get deployed only to protect property. You know, they don't really get deployed to protect people. And so, I don't know, I, I feel like we could accomplish some some good things. I feel like we could accomplish some pretty, some pretty radical things in that amount of time, but it's going to require drastic action. Obviously, I agree with Faye that we should, we should plan for the worst, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And that's something that, that I think a lot of people in the SRA can get behind. Yeah, when it, when it comes to things as dire as this, you don't need to speak properly. You don't need to speak kindly. You need to speak loudly. You need to get in people's faces. And you need to, you need to propose and follow through on radical change because that's the only thing that's going to save us. Manners aren't going to save us. You can't, you can't say please and thank you to a hurricane. You can't say please and thank you to, to an ice age. You can't debate your way out of global climate change. No, we, we have to be bold. We have to be radical. And we can't accept someone who is going to be moderate about this because time is, is not a luxury that we have anymore. Classism is, is only feeding into the bourgeois bet that they're going to survive climate change and we aren't. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm always a bit of a pessimist on these things. I wouldn't be a socialist if I didn't believe that the workers have the power to overthrow the ruling class and to abolish capitalism. The ability of working class people to shut down an economy by withholding their labor going on a general strike, staging a revolution, whatever it takes. I think that the working class is extremely powerful. I'm just worried that we don't have time. Marx had time. Lenin had time. Rosa Luxemburg had time. Mao had time. We don't. Yeah, so. yeah I, I 100% agree with that because we haven't really faced this issue before as a people. You know, as in, in our civilization, we, we have not yet been faced well no i i suppose that we have you know in the 80s with everyone threatening to nuke each other and you know all of that good stuff true and going back to the sort of pre-revolutionary like world war one sort of era there was worries about the like malthusian crisis that people wouldn't be able to grow enough food to feed everyone and that ended up being solved by a, a German chemical weapons scientist accidentally discovered that you can create fertilizers from the air by using electric power and thereby prevented the crisis that Lenin and Luxembourg and others of that era were concerned about. But in so doing, the same technology that allowed, that allowed people to avoid the Malthusian crisis of not being able to grow enough food also increased carbon emissions uh, contributing to our current problem. You know, and 
I don't think that we can count on a moonshot technological breakthrough to solve climate change, whether that's cold fusion or, you know, throwing up a big umbrella between the earth and the sun. I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to save us. I don't think we can rely on that. So I, I believe we do need to plan for the damage that's going to be caused to our planet in the next uh, several decades. And Yeah, we, it's, it's a tough position to be in because we simultaneously have to plan for some amount of radical change. We have to plan and put our efforts into strengthening our communities, strengthening the working class, educating them, and putting power in their hands as much as possible, while also understanding that we have some serious roadblocks ahead of us. You know, our police are militarized. The billionaires own an incredible, incredible, incomprehensible amount of power and wealth in our country. We have to simultaneously plan to overthrow them while also planning on saving ourselves from the consequences of their actions. It's not an easy position to to be in. I'm certainly stressed out a good chunk of the time. Yeah, we really have our work cut out for us. So I think it's, yeah, I, I think that that's a good summary of where I stand on Bernie, where I stand on Feinstein, where I stand on billionaires in general hope for the best plan for the worst because they are certainly doing their best to bring the worst to our doorstep absolutely and uh, i will remind you whatever you think our future looks like whether you think that's a post-apocalyptic nuclear hellscape a world flooded and wrecked by climate change whether you think the united states is going to become a fascist dictatorship or whether you think that it's going to continue down the same slow neoliberal decline i do want to remind everyone that in every single one of those scenarios, the left would not be worse off for having guns. No, sir. So in in light of all this depressing news, as gun owners who are affected by the state of the world and how that affects our mental health, let's say that I don't like some of the thoughts that I'm having as a gun owner who's who's suffering from mental health issues. What, What should I do in that situation? So it's absolutely something that leftists and gun owners need to be aware of that the biggest cause of death by firearm is suicide in the United States. In the U.S., there are typically between eight and 10,000 suicides committed with a firearm every year. And many of the vulnerable communities that the SRA tries to reach out to and that we advocate for these communities to be armed, many of these communities suffer from even higher rates of suicide than the general public. You know, poor people, transgender people, especially um, who are unable to transition. These people often have need of firearms for self-defense or for community defense. But then we also run the issue of do people who are suffering from depression and other mental health issues who might be at risk of suicide, should we really be introducing firearms into these people's homes? And I want to say that right off the bat, if you have a history of suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts, If you are worried that if you get a gun that you might commit suicide, you should not get a gun. You know, we talk a lot about the necessity of the working class being armed, but that doesn't mean that every working class person needs to be armed. If you don't feel that you can be safe as a firearms owner, then don't own a firearm. If you own one and you have frequent suicidal thoughts, please get rid of it. Because if you do have those thoughts, having a gun in the house will increase the likelihood that you will use it on yourself in a moment of acute distress. And suicide by firearm is more likely to be lethal than many other forms of suicide methods. So this is something that you need to be aware of. If you have a history of this, don't 
by a gun. However, there are many people who don't deal with chronic suicidal thoughts who can safely own a firearm without worrying. However, sometimes bad shit happens. People lose a job, there's a bad breakup, people go through a rough period, and during those periods of situational depression, people who own a gun and are ordinarily fine might start having suicidal thoughts. And in that case, as a community, we need to think of ways that we can address this so that we can deal with those acute issues without necessarily having to consider giving up gun ownership entirely when we own guns for self-defense or for community defense. So one thing that I advocate that I think that people need to be more aware of that this is an option. If you own a gun and you start having suicidal thoughts and it's something temporary that will pass, you just can't have a gun in the house right at that moment. A good option is to give that gun to a friend or to disassemble the gun and give parts of it to a friend. Just to be able to get that gun and, you know, and its ammunition out of the house so that if you do get those thoughts that you cannot easily turn it on yourself. Now, giving a gun to a friend temporarily can get a little bit legally dicey. In, in many states, especially in uh, red states in the Midwest and South, um, you can typically transfer a firearm to someone, just hand it to them, and it falls into the same category as like a private firearms transaction, like buying a gun from someone off the internet or at a gun store, and it doesn't need to go through a background check or a firearms dealer. However, in other states like California, New York, New Jersey, where you have more strict laws on that that do require all firearm transfers to go through a dealer and to count as sales, obviously giving a gun to a friend temporarily while dealing with a, a rough situation may not be the best option. It may be too difficult to deal with that paperwork. In a situation like that, I would advocate disassembling the firearm and giving critical components of it to a friend or a comrade for safekeeping. For instance, if you have a bolt-action rifle, take the bolt out of the rifle and give it to someone else. If you have a pistol, take the slide off the frame and give the slide to someone to hang on to. Components like slides, bolts, firing pins, trigger packages, these are just parts. They aren't legally considered a gun. So you can hold on to the frame of a pistol or the receiver of a rifle and you can just hold on to that and still have legal ownership of the gun itself. But by giving critical components to someone else, you won't be able to fire it. And you'll remove the risk of turning that weapon on yourself when you may have temporary suicidal thoughts. So I think that's an option that a lot of people need to be more aware of. That, you know, if you are a gun owner and things are getting rough, just remove the ability to use it. Just get it out of there or get the bolt out of there. And when you're better off, when you're not having those thoughts anymore, when you're back on your feet and you're stable, then you can take it back and everything's like it was before. I would also like to add that this applies to people other than yourself. If you have a family member or someone who lives in your home who may be at risk for suicide, if there's any deficiency in your ability to secure your firearm, if you don't have that thing under lock and key and have that key on your person at all times, then you should do the same thing and deactivate those guns, make them unavailable so that someone else can't gain access to your weapons and turn them on themselves or others when they're going through a mental health crisis. So your responsibility extends beyond yourself. It extends to anyone who could get access to your guns. If that's a concern, then you need to address it.
Yeah, we are 100% about responsible gun ownership. And part of being a responsible gun owner is considering the headspace that you're in, considering the headspace that other people are in, that the people involved in your life are in, and the kind of power that having a gun gives you. We're, we're not talking about just your average recreational tool. You know, we're talking about something that's designed for a purpose. And part of that responsibility is safely storing it, and also safely dealing with your own mental health and dealing with the mental health of, of other people. We, we have to approach it from a non-judgmental lens and talk about things as troubling as the amount of people who commit suicide every year in, in the United States with guns. We aren't doing anybody any favors by not talking about it. Absolutely, and I, I really despise conservatives who try to downplay this or say that it isn't an issue. I think it's really cynical the way a lot of politicians approach this and just sort of try to downplay suicide as not a big deal. It is a big deal, especially for many of the communities that are most vulnerable and most in need of protection. Absolutely. If there's a danger, there's no harm in removing the firearm from your home temporarily. I think it's also important for people to be able to have someone in their life that they can turn to and speak to about this when they are going through a tough situation. Our capitalist society is so isolating and so alienating. It divides us from each other, then it makes people afraid to speak personally to each other about their problems. We should strive to create a culture in leftist spaces where people can talk to others to help them get through these troubles. By the same token, we can't expect everyone to always be there to be someone's therapist or to be the shoulder someone cries on because helping someone deal with their emotions is emotional labor. And so you do need to be aware not everyone can fulfill that role all the time. So it's important to build large communities, strong communities where there are enough people involved that there is someone that you can turn to without necessarily putting all of the burden on one person because that can exacerbate the situation just as much. Yeah, when when we're talking about strong communities, we're talking about communities in which People ask each other how they're doing, they pay attention to their feelings, they validate those feelings, and also that they recognize the limitations that one person who's not a mental health professional can provide. It's one thing to provide someone shoulder to cry on, which is extremely important, but also bear in mind that certain people who are members of the community are literally trained to handle situations like this. And so there's no harm in encouraging someone to seek out a counselor, to seek out, you know, a a mental health professional that they can talk to. A a strong community is a mentally healthy community. And I and I think that that's something that we that we all need to be paying very close attention to. All right. So we're going to break for intermission. When we come back, we're going to have an interview with SRA member Oso. He's going to speak with us about his experiences as a Jewish person living in the South, as well as his experience being one of the key people in the SRA's hurricane relief operations for Hurricanes Florence and Michael last year. He has a lot of really interesting stories to share with us, so look forward to that after the break. In the meantime, please listen to this cover, which I recorded, of a classic folk song called Black Powder and Alcohol by Leslie Fish, former head of the IWW house band. When the states and the cities fall When your back is against the wall Black powder and alcohol Give me charcoal to the measure too Send that bullet where you want it to 
give me sulfur to the measure three Make that powder gonna keep you free Give me salt, Peter, measure fifteen Sweetest shooting that you've ever seen Remember, black powder and alcohol When the states and the cities fall When your back is against the wall Black powder and alcohol Give me water, yeast, and veggie trash Leave it sitting in the slurry mash When it's ready, put it in the still If you can't heat it up, the sunlight will Draw the alcohol away and then Put the slurry back and start again Black powder and alcohol When the states and the cities fall When your back is against the wall Black powder and alcohol So run your car You can make it anywhere you are Black powder in your cartridge shell Will send the fascists running clean to hell You can make them if you just know how So kids remember what I'm teaching you now well, do ya? Black powder and alcohol When the states and the cities fall When your back is against the wall Black powder and alcohol Why the hell made from the fall? Alright folks, welcome back from the intermission. Today, we have an interview with an SRA comrade who's been a very uh, important figure in the organization, also from our North Georgia chapter. Uh, say hi to everyone. Hello, uh, comrades out there in the SRA land. This is Oso from North Georgia. For anyone who doesn't know, Oso has been a big part of the SRA since the beginning. He was uh, deeply involved in both of our hurricane relief efforts for Hurricanes Florence and Michael. He's our big Jewish bear of a comrade with an AK, and he's going to be talking to us today about some of the issues uh, surrounding Jewish identity and gun ownership, uh, maybe at the end talking a little bit about his experiences with the hurricane relief actions. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What brought you into the SRA? I joined the SRA because I was looking for having some um, some more comrades here in North Georgia that maybe felt the same way as I did politically or had similar interests in shooting. But I kind of was feeling alone here in, in North Georgia because unless you have some kind of group that ties you together, people are have a tendency to become spread out in this rural area. So I happened upon uh, the account for Georgia Marxist, which uh, he lives close by, and we got to talking and he uh, introduced me to the SRA and I think he had posted about the SRA actually, and that got me uh, interested in joining the organization. So living in the South as a Jewish person, are you practicing or are you just ethnically Jewish or is it? I'm a religious practicing Jewish person. I am not ethnically. Um, I converted to Judaism about 15 years ago when I, I still lived in California. And the Jewish community in the 
place where I lived there was bigger. We had Jewish community centers and everything like that. It was easier for me to transition into this religion to figure out my bearings, you know, learn the things that I needed to learn about Judaism. In uh, North Georgia here, I, I, I would have a bit more trouble learning about Judaism and the traditions because there isn't many resources available here for Jewish people. Um, maybe in Atlanta, there's a lot of Jewish people, but not in the North Georgia area. There aren't... There isn't a synagogue for me to go to, for instance, here. However, there are a few uh, Jewish summer camps for children, but that doesn't do a lot for someone like myself that would like to go to shul on a Friday night. Right. So it seems like the community is a lot more spread out there. You know, in a rural area, you don't really have those big institutions like a synagogue that can tie people together. So people are a lot more isolated. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. And it makes me feel more vulnerable as a Jewish person here because there isn't a sense of community here. Not having a place to go and worship really disconnects you from that community. Do you ever feel like there's any danger or threat to you because of your identity or to other members of your community. I know that there is a significant clan presence and other white supremacist groups in uh, various parts of Georgia. Is that ever an issue there? Well, I've been in contact with uh, what they call hammerskins, and it, it makes me worried just seeing what's going on and reading people's thoughts online and people that I know exist here you know, in this area, it, it does make me worry for my safety and my family's safety, just being, you know, in the same house with somebody that would be a, a target for the the white nationalists. I have worked at places as a bouncer and have come in contact with these hammer skins or other, not, not necessarily Klansmen, but just people that make comments that are derogatory, even though I'm not a ethnically Jewish person, somehow they still make those assumptions and kind of threatening looks and say things in a threatening manner. Um, I've not felt this way when I lived in California. Let's just say that. Yeah, we do have our white supremacists here in California, but they tend to be a lot more on the down low about it. Yeah, I haven't experienced that there at all. But when I got here, working as a, a bouncer in these places, it's strange that they would, I don't know, maybe it's that, you know, here's a big guy, I'm going to challenge him. You know, maybe that's the thing. I don't know. But I definitely have felt more threatened here in Georgia than I would have in California. So we mentioned a little bit before uh, beginning this interview, you told me a little bit about those Jewish summer camps and some of the precautions that they take. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that without necessarily saying anything that you shouldn't say? Yeah, there's, a, I think, at least two Jewish summer camps up here in North Georgia, and they're, you know, tucked back away. They're not uh, advertising who they are, but there are a few people in the Jewish community that are here. There's not a lot, but we have used those facilities in the past, for instance, for, for like Passover and things like that. We use some of their facilities, but they're, it's kind of wild. They have high, very high security armed security. And it's interesting to see something like that in real life. What we do as a business here or to make a living as we haul the recycling from all these places. And one of the camps was our customer. And um, I got to see firsthand, you know, inside the layers of security to protect Jewish children, you know, just trying to go to summer camp. And that's 
that's just totally foreign to me. Growing up, I went to a Christian summer camp and they had one sort of part-time rent-a-cop, you know, retired police officer with a revolver and a stun gun. And dude wasn't even always there. And that was all the security they had. And having this community where people feel the need to have armed security to protect their children at these places all the time. Something that I think a lot of people overlook is the sort of security culture that the Jewish community has to develop. And there's a lot more of that, that sort of community defense aspect within that community than you'd see in a lot of other groups in America. It's true. It's true. You know, with the shooting that they had in the synagogue in uh, Pittsburgh, that incident right there, for me, really drove home the need for higher levels of security in our communities. I don't know. It's kind of tough to even think about, you know, that like I carry a gun every day because of some of the experiences that I've had here since I've been in Georgia. You know, the the things that I've read about people who live here that want to kill me just because I happen to identify as a Jewish person. And the situation in the synagogue where lots of people were murdered, they had no protection. You know, there wasn't anybody to help them. I'm not saying we should bring guns into churches and synagogues. I don't know. But it is very troublesome, and I worry about it every day. That's one of the reasons why I am armed every day, everywhere I go. Is that something that's accepted in the community, or is that something that people might give you a side eye for? Is it something that people would understand? See, I've mixed feelings in that regard. I have friends that go visit Israel every year, and one of the first things that they do is they have someone that holds a gun for them so that whenever they get there, they have it. You know, I can't speak for everyone. I can only really speak for myself. But I think there's definitely people that have a mind for higher security. And in our community, there's more of that than not. How do you feel about the relationship between socialists and the Jewish community? Is there any way that groups like the SRA can better serve those communities, both in helping with you know, self-defense and armed community defense, but also in terms of solidarity actions to help when needed? Because I know there is a bit of friction, especially with the disagreements between the left and many, not all, but many Jewish people with regards to Israel. Is there anything that we can do to show solidarity with these groups, even if we have disagreements on politics? That's a tough question. I mean, the only thing I can say is that we need a show of solidarity would be to open open our arms up to the Jewish community and just say, if you need help learning about self-defense, you want to know how to operate a, a gun, what's the safest way to protect your family and protect your, your congregation, and we'll be here you know, to help you with every question or step that you may need answered. Absolutely. And even beyond firearms, being able to help with material needs as well, just in terms of when there is damage to a community like that, if there is a shooting or something else, just being able to show solidarity in terms of donations or anything else, I'm sure would also be greatly appreciated. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Always, you know, material support, maybe kind of along the lines of what we do with the mutual aid for the hurricanes. If an incident like that happens, show up with a shoulder to cry on, maybe some hot food or something like that, just to help the mourning process. Absolutely. Though, obviously, we also shouldn't go where we aren't wanted, especially as a gun organization. We always have to be mindful of that. So it should be approached in the sense of, if we're wanted there, what can we do to help? That will really come down to a specific circumstance. But for the most part, I guess we just have to be there and be available for education, training, and solidarity when needed. Exactly. Exactly. Just have open arms about it. You know, we're here. We'll help you. 
So talking now about hurricane relief, you had a very critical role in both of our hurricane relief operations. Uh, You have a very nice truck that you were able to uh, donate to the cause and to help haul supplies to the places that were needed. Can you talk a bit about uh, your experiences with those two actions? Sure. Thank you for saying the truck is very nice. I just got done doing some major repair work to the truck. It is, it's got some age and wear on it, but it does the job. For the hurricane operation for Florence, I volunteered that the truck because I knew we were going to be close enough to the Carolinas, and that's where the hurricane was set to fall. Uh, our president, Alex, and um, Georgia Marxist, who lives close by, the three of us set out to bring supplies to some shelters. And we were able to go to Costco. Alex actually drove out here from Kansas by himself, which was like a hero's drive. It's very far. Made it here in a day. You know, we got together, we formed a plan and what to do. And we were to leave the next day to go and deliver those supplies that he had brought some from Kansas. And we were to get some from the Costco locally here the next day. So we loaded up all those supplies in the truck. We went to the Costco, obtained a whole bunch more from the funds that were, I think they were generated on a GoFundMe. We loaded we them up. About, we raised about 1300 for Hurricane Florence. Okay. Yes, that was, it was pretty good for a first kind of, it was, I think it was a great job it, for a first time that our organization had ever done that. I think we did awesome. We raised an incredible amount of money in a short amount of time. I think it was what, two days, something like that. Okay. When we headed to what was the first place we headed to it was, a, and I believe it was Augusta, Georgia was our first stop. And it was a, I want to say it was a Lutheran church in Glacia. I don't remember the rest of the name. Anyway, they had set up a red cross shelter there and we had a bit of a hard time finding shelters on the Red Cross website that were available to take in donations, you would think that there would be a much easier process for people to actually bring physical things to them. But it was it seemed to be very cumbersome. And and Alex was doing a great job sitting shotgun and trying to find the shelters that we were going to take to. But he found this one in Augusta. We went there and we dropped off about half the supply to them. And it was it was pretty cool. You know, lots of smiles and and everybody was happy to have the supplies. And I felt like we were doing some really good work there with that because they didn't have a lot in that shelter. They had maybe a couple of cases of water. They had like a small kitchenette and things. So they had they had a little bit of stuff from Augusta. We headed more towards South Carolina, more towards where the storm was actually happening. We were kind of driving into it. And I said, the second part of our load, we were trying to find another place to take it. So Alex was looking on the phone at the different shelters and we were trying to to locate another shelter that would accept donations. And we ended up at a college and the name escapes me of the college at this point, but we rolled in there maybe about six, about five or 6 p.m. And the atmosphere was very eerie. You know, it's uh, those big oak trees with some of the Spanish moss hanging down, but it was the campus was almost completely empty, as you could imagine. And we went to the gym, and the gym was where the shelter was supposed to be. And uh, we talked to the shelter manager there, and they were actually closing that shelter down. They didn't have anybody there to come stay. So we all had to scramble to figure out where it is we would take the rest of our supplies. And we were all got on our phone and searched around, and we found a, a shelter in Orangeburg, South Carolina, 
uh, at an elementary school, and we drove there. Took us a little while, about an hour to get there, and that shelter was full of people. So we talked to them about if they wanted to take in supplies, and they're very happy to have them. They had maybe half a dozen cases of water, and that was all they had, and they had a full shelter. So we uh, unloaded the truck, backed it up to their door and unloaded the truck there and got help unloading it. And, um, you know, so they asked, you know, what is the group that you're with? You know, who are you guys? Why are you, why are you bringing this, just bringing supplies out here without getting into a, a huge explanation of who we were? Um, you know, Alex just says, yes, we're with the SRA. And the guy says, well, what is that? Alex says, well, we're communists. And the guy <laughs> the, the shelter manager, he just says, oh, well, thank you, communists. And <laughs> it was really funny. We got a good laugh and he gave us some some blankets, some of those really nice shelter blankets. And we pretty much just left from there because the storm was 10 minutes from that shelter. We really needed to get out of the Carolinas at that point or else we were going to have to stay in the shelter, I think. We drove back and uh, as we're on the freeway, you could tell the wind was picking up. The truck started moving a bit to, you know, side to side. And I gave it a bit more gas. And I mean, the rain picked up, the wind picked up, and it was literally the storm was chasing us down the, the freeway. We made it out of the Carolinas without any incident. And we didn't have any major issues, no failures. That trip was a really good trip. And we all got along in the car. It was a very long day. Nobody uh, got mad with each other over ideological differences. And it was really great. And I'm happy we went there. It was a good trip. Sounds like it, especially bringing supplies to a, a crowded shelter with not enough and being able to say, oh, yes, we're communists. I, I think there's some value in that in that alone. Oh, yeah. he, he was surprised. His eyes got a little bit wide, but, you know, he was a gentleman from Georgia over there in, in the Carolinas helping out. Absolutely. And, you know, it's. It's all sorts of folks that help out, and I'm glad that we were able to go out there and, you know, give a little bit of aid where we could. But Florence was sort of the smaller of our two relief efforts. In a way, the larger effort was for Hurricane Michael. So with Hurricane Florence, uh, it was a very slow-moving storm out over the Atlantic. We had a lot of time to prepare. We started raising money days before it hit the coast. With Hurricane Michael, you know, we had about maybe 36 hours worth of warning and so we started raising money just right before the storm hit. And then you went down there just a day or two later in the aftermath. So that seems like it was a very different operation, at least in terms of what happened on the ground. So would you like to talk about our efforts with Hurricane Michael? It very much was different. The timetable was was really bad for, for having, you know, a lot of volunteers and trying to muster people to, to get down there. Uh, when we started the fundraiser, I saw that it was going pretty good. Um, and then I think it was like the day or two before I was going to go and load the truck and buy all the things. We had a donor that gave us a very interesting amount of money. Um, it was really cool. I think uh, a lot of us saw that donation, but it, those for those who didn't, um, someone donated $1,312, which was really pretty awesome. Yes, um, and then after that donation, uh, that person then donated again. So someone, not entirely sure who that who that was. They had a name, but 
wasn't clear exactly who it was. That person probably accounted for a third of the funds that we raised, at least. Um, and we raised something around $3,500 for Hurricane Michael. Uh, so much that we weren't actually able to spend all of it on supplies because Oso just couldn't fit that much in his truck. Yes, the truck was loaded down. I went to uh, a grocery store called Aldi because their prices are really good. And I was able to get along the lines of about $500 worth of canned goods, tortillas, some ramen soup, um, a lot of food I was able to get there. That, as much food as I bought there, was like two or three shopping carts. I want to say it was two and a half shopping carts there. Didn't even fill the truck halfway. But it was so much we needed that many carts. The next day we went to... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That same day, I went to the Home Depot. We got a chainsaw, all the things you need for cutting trees, extra fuel and the gas tanks and the bar and chain oil and the tools and everything for down trees because that was a, a very big problem in Hurricane Michael is there was a lot more you know, trees down and on houses and in roads and everything there. There was a lot of wind with that one. And then the following day, we went to Costco, and I was I was met by some comrades that actually lived in Tallahassee that were in Atlanta escaping the storm, and also a comrade from uh, up here in, in Atlanta. And, sh and we all went there, got the remaining supplies, which filled the truck all the way to the top. You, I couldn't get any more in. I had the cab filled, and I had the, the back filled all the way about six feet stacked wow. all the kinds of food and water but i think 20 25 cases of water diapers sanitary supplies uh soap you know anything that you can possibly think that might be needed there we attempted to get and we spent all the limit that we could for our that would fit in the truck so we we pretty much bought everything we could buy and from there, I left. I went down to Florida. I drove by myself. Uh, it was a long day. <laughs> the plan was actually to stop in South Georgia where there was some damage. And we were in contact with some comrades that lived there. And along the way, they determined that, you know, we didn't need to stop there. They had everything under control. There was no need for uh, supplies. They had everything they need. Uh, so I changed the path that I was traveling and I took a more direct route to Tallahassee which was the spot where uh, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief had set up at a, a, the Florida People's Action Center. I was heading down there to drop off supplies, and on the way there, I mean, there were trees knocked over everywhere. Wow. Power lines in the road everywhere. It was quite the sight to behold. You know, I have not seen that kind of destruction in my life before, or my life experiences before. You know, I'm from California, I've seen wildfires and been around earthquakes and things like that, but never something like this. It was a lot of destruction, and but mostly because of the trees, you know, the trees, they fall down on everything. But I got to Tallahassee, it was about nine o'clock, and going through town in Tallahassee, some places had power, some places didn't. A lot of the street lights, you know, the signal lights were powered by generators on every corner. So I, I would say that that area was hit pretty hard. Um, but from what I understand, the areas in Panama City Beach were hit much more devastating, you know, winds. And there was a lot more damage. The facility there in Tallahassee 
was used as like a staging and collection area for for supplies to be distributed by um, mutual aid disaster relief. They, you know, meet there and then take the supplies down in areas where there was maybe migrant community that couldn't go to the shelter because um, there were rumors that ICE was sitting outside of shelters and, and ready to take people that were going in for help. So I, I really want to give uh, praise to the mutual aid disaster relief folks down there and the comrades that I made because they're doing some really good work. I was following that communication um, after you dropped the supplies off at the uh, Florida People's Action Center. And uh, we just did the uh, supply delivery to the area just so they had that stuff on hand. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and members of Tallahassee DSA and other groups did the actual work of distributing that to communities in need. They drove out to uh, west of Tallahassee and down south to Panama City or Panama City Beach, and they were able to give those supplies to communities that could not seek shelter and were able to directly aid those people so I think that especially want to give a shout out to Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and Tallahassee DSA because they really stepped up and did a lot for those communities. I believe we spent a total of $2,000 on supplies before your truck <laughs> hit its limits. And the rest of that money we gave directly to Tallahassee DSA. Most of that money was used for temporarily housing people who were displaced following the hurricane, which is another thing that people don't realize. The sort of thing that we did running supplies is very important to helping people in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, but the harm caused to that community lasts for a lot longer and people need help getting back on their feet people need places to stay so uh, in that situation you know cash donations to grassroots organizations on the ground can do a whole lot of good as well yeah i agree i was kind of glad we had some money left over for something like that because that can get applied directly to the needs there that they had you know instead of kind of a generalized material support they could have you know, they can take that 500 or $1,000 and rent a space or what, what they need specifically instead of us trying to impose, well, what do we think you need? Absolutely, because it sounds like our supplies were very much needed at that time, but the needs of people in a disaster situation go so much further beyond that. The sort of supply runs that we did are extremely valuable, but I would encourage anyone, if you're not able to participate in an action like this, or if you aren't able to donate money until after the disaster has already happened and you're not sure if you can donate you know, material goods like that, donating money to grassroots groups on the ground, especially left-leaning groups like Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, DSAs, I think PSL also participated in helping people out down there. Giving money to groups like that to help people with their specific needs can do a lot of good as well. So it goes beyond just supplies and supply deliveries. People need help for weeks and months after these events. You know, it goes out of the news cycle really quickly, but you need to keep in mind that there are still people who need help long after the storm has passed. And like you were saying, um, I all followed along with the, the chat group about that hurricane well after we were done. And they were they were operating, what, maybe a month after? Two months? Yeah, well into well into two months after the disaster. Yeah, it was there there's a lot of work to be done when something like that happens and, and whenever it's grassroots and it's just people like me and you, we don't have bulldozers and everything like that. We have to do it with our hands. So of course these things are gonna take longer. So 
Based on your experiences, do you have any advice for people who want to take part in a sort of direct mutual aid, like of the sort that we engaged in? Do you have any specific advice for people who are wanting to help in the way that you did? I guess my advice would be if you want to help and you have it in your heart, you can be of some help and you want to do good for what's, you know, in the situation. Follow those, you know, solidarity network or requests for solidarity. See what people need. And then depending on what you can do, not everybody has the ability to do money or give food. If you can go down there and you can help pass out food or you can go down there and maybe be somebody that somebody can talk to, you know, because there, there's a lot of stress in, involved in these disaster scenarios. Just, you know, listen and do what you can to help people. If you feel that it's your duty to help, by all means, go and help. That's really the most important part is to follow those feelings and actually go out and do the work that you're able to do from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It's a socialist cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason because it's true. If you have the means to help out and you feel that solidarity in your heart, you just need to go out there and do it and be available for the people who need it. It's true. It's true. Just do what you can do. That's all I can say about that is, is, you know, if you feel like you need to help, go help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to talk about these experiences. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? I don't have a lot else to say. I, I know I got a little bit long-winded in my storytelling. I'm just grateful to be be a part of this organization and have so many new comrades and maybe some comrades that I haven't met um, and be part of this larger community of people that are willing to do uh, do the good work that needs to be done. All I can say is that I'm grateful for, for everyone and um, solidarity. Solidarity forever. Thank you.